Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Longtime listeners of the show know by now that the unexplained and mysterious have been a part of my life nearly as long as I can recall, going back to the early 1980s. One of the earliest unsolved and unexplained mysteries I remember just happens to be perfect for the spooky season of Halloween. Take an idyllic Caribbean island, take us back over 200 years, and make the setting of the tale a family burial vault and a cemetery, and now we are truly talking Halloween. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you're having a great week. I hope everything has been fine and dandy wherever you are in the world. I hope that you've got to enjoy yourself a bit. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope it's been cooling down a bit. So you've been able to enjoy. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, welcome to spring, starting to get there finally. It's quite nice to, you know, not have those chilly evenings where I am anyway. It's still getting a bit cool, but not how it was a month or so ago. So it's definitely been good. Well, folks, I've got a really good one for you for this episode. As I say, this is a very enduring legend or tale. Uh, some people say that it, that's all it is, is it was a made up story. Lots of other people say that this is a hand-me-down story that took place in the early 1800s in Barbados in the Caribbean. So it's a fascinating tale. It's got to do with a graveyard and some unexplained goings on. I don't want to give it all away to you right now, but uh, after we get through the very quick shout outs and the news of the damned, I will be into the very intriguing story of the Chase Family Vault in Barbados. So anyway, folks, uh, I'm not going to go into individual shout outs tonight. Just for the Halloween season, I've been trying to, you know, move a bit more quickly through it. But uh, rest assured, anyone who's listening to this program, anyone who's taking the time to listen to this episode right now, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate all of the love and support that I get. And as I've told you before, it's really the wind in my sails that allows me to carry on doing what I do. So thank you so very much. Yeah, it's hard to believe that I've been doing this program as long as I have now, but uh, you know, it's been about five months. So yeah, time flies when you're having fun, I guess. Aside from that, as I say, I hope that you're doing great everywhere where you are in the world. I hope those of you that celebrate Halloween or find interest in it, I hope you're really getting into the mood. And hopefully, especially for young ones, I hope that you get to be able to take them out and do things like take them to Halloween parties and that I don't know quite how COVID's affecting it wherever you are in the world. So anyway, from the paranormal sun to you, welcome to the spooky season, and I really hope that you enjoy it. I've been watching a few really classic movies to get me in the mood, as I say. Uh, the last several years, I really haven't gotten into it that much, but I've been watching a few classic movies. Last night, I watched one of the iconic Hollywood monster movies the 1935 release of The Bride of Frankenstein. And, you know, one of my favorites, many people would look at it now and say it's a bit campy, but at the time it was actually banned in several places because it was so horrific. So, yeah, quite quite an interesting uh, turn of events, how things go, you know. You add uh, 80 years or so onto what we're doing now, and there'll probably be a lot of things that people laugh about now you know, laugh about at that time that now we find, you know, deeply offensive or, you know, uh, 
people don't want to see it in films and that, and probably in the future people will say, oh, what was that all about? Why were they so upset about that? Or why did they think that would corrupt people? So yeah, anyway, I, I do find it quite interesting how society changes through the years. So having said all that, as I say, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. You can go over and join the Paranormal Sun on the Facebook group, you know, so just search the Paranormal Sun. You can also find the Paranormal Sun on Instagram. You can find me on the Paranormal Sun website. You can send me an email at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. Any way that you would like to reach out to me, by all means, reach out to me. If there's a show topic you would like me to cover, if there's a question you've got, something you want me to read on the air, by all means, go through, send me a message. Also, as I say, if you want to help the show, you can suggest the program to anyone else who might be like-minded. You can also go and, as I say, join, you know, add, add me on Instagram, join the Facebook group page, sign up for the blogs over at theparanormalsun.com, any of those, you know, venues that helps. You can also uh, like and review the podcast on any of the podcast providers that you might be listening to. That all helps, definitely. If you're feeling a bit more generous, you can go to theparanormalsun.com and you can drop a few dollars in the PayPal account there in the link. That uh, will, of course, only go to paying for things that have to do with this program. And long may it rain. And if you're feeling more generous, you can go over and support the program on Patreon. But anything you do, like I say, if you want to start from the beginning, you can just go and follow us on social media and definitely suggest the program to a friend if there's anything that you like. So with all that said, folks, I hope that uh, you're in the mood to listen to some excellent articles here for you. Now, as again, if you're new to the show, the News of the Damned is the news segment that uh, I have every week. So I try and give you a few good articles every week. So Charles Fort was one of the real modern founding fathers of what we now call the paranormal, the unexplained, and you know things like cryptids and UFOs and all of that. Charles Fort was one of the first people that started gathering information from magazines and newspapers and correlating them into books and then releasing them for the public so that you and I could go and look at some of these trends and patterns. And he was one of the first people to really start documenting that. And Charles Fort referred to any data that was ignored by science or, you know, shunned as damn data. Therefore, every week I try and bring you several articles that fit into those categories. And that's why it's called the News of the Damned. Now I'm going to try and move through this fairly quickly for you tonight because I've got a bumper crop. I've got five articles for you, but uh, I started getting into it and there were just you know, five excellent articles. So, um, you know, I didn't want to leave any out. So the first one here we've got, this one is definitely in the vein of the Halloween times and in the vein of your modern technology, folks. So this is from daily.com, so D-A-I-L-Y dot D-O-T dot com. And this one is titled, Paranormal TikTok is here to give you the creeps. TikTok creators are coming up with their own scary stories. And this was written by Audra Schroeder. So it says, there are ghosts everywhere on TikTok, not just in divisive viral photo shoots. Last year, a video went viral after Chance the Rapper claimed that there was a ghost in it. In April, user Rubik's underscore cube 
filmed a dance to Doja Cat's Say So, but many pointed out something on the stairs behind them. Last month, user Anna Banana started off a video about White Claw before being interrupted by something in the curtains. This is post-paranormal activity content. There are compilations of all the weird, unexplained things that happen in the backgrounds of TikToks. A generation raised on internet lore like Slenderman is of course going to have its own ideas about what scares them, or a captive audience. The language of the platform, cursed TikToks, as well as its many weird niche avenues, deep TikTok, make it fertile territory for creepy content. On Paranormal TikTok, you'll find a collection of amateur ghost hunters, mediums, and people who think their houses are haunted. Some of these accounts ramp up the theatrics of the paranormal investigation for clicks. Others are more subtle in their approach. But under the umbrella of Paranormal TikTok, there are other evolutions happening. The Urban Legend Reframed Over the summer, a decades-old urban legend about someone hiding under your car and slashing your Achilles tendon so you can't run away was circulated on TikTok as a cautionary tale. This is something I heard growing up in the 90s, and the story goes back even further than that. So I was a bit surprised to see how long it has survived in nearly the exact same framing. TikTok has no shortage of accounts dedicated to retellings of urban legends, true crime stories, or scary internet stories. Leticia Rodriguez spotlights different urban legends and folklore on her account, Letty Loves You. The popularity of her videos makes her realize there are lots of people out there who have experienced paranormal things and also wanted to share their own stories. She says her most popular content is the Scary Things Kids Say series, but Rodriguez has a more personal connection to paranormal stories. She tells the Daily Dot she grew up in South Texas in a home where she heard and saw unexplained things and experienced what she describes as sleep paralysis starting around age 8 or 9. Rodriguez said she's not entirely sure sleep paralysis is the exact term for what she experienced. In my culture, we call this cuando se te sube el muerto, which translates to when the dead gets on you. Liz Fan produces similar content, reaching into internet-based stories like the Blue Whale Challenge, as well as fan theories behind certain TV shows and movies. She says her most popular video so far is a Japanese legend, Kuchisaki Ona, aka the Slipmouthed Woman. I think its popularity would have been derived from the fact that it's a very popular Japanese urban legend, she says, though at the same time I feel it's not as known in Western cultures. So I see it as either a new story that people are interested in hearing, or a general fan favorite amongst fans of urban legends. Of course, the fact that these stories might not be entirely true is part of the allure. Creepypasta, the name given to scary stories and memes worn on and passed around the internet, is still a source material for a lot of urban legend TikTok. The platform even elevated its own version of Slenderman, Siren Head. But TikTok is also producing its own scary stories, with some frightening real-world consequences. The, Ran the Randonautica app became popular on TikTok this summer. After being released in February, it asks adventurous users what their intent is, and then sends them to seemingly random coordinates based on their location. Joshua Langfelder, one of the app's founders, told the New York Times he wasn't surprised at the app's popularity, because basically what it is is like a machine that creates memes and legends, and it kind of virally propagates on its own. Over the summer, the app led a group of teens to a Seattle beach, where they found a suitcase filled with human remains. It was later identified as the bodies of Jessica Lewis and Austin Cash Winner, a couple who'd been murdered by their landlord. 
In another viral instance, a young woman in Colorado allegedly happened upon a shooting victim after setting her intention as death. Those are extreme examples, but they also likely made more people want to use the app. Randonautica is the perfect platform for crafting fake horror stories, which then evolve on TikTok. In June, one user claimed he and a friend were being pursued by a man in a boat after the app led them to a beach. In August, another user was led into the woods of Pennsylvania and claimed she deleted the app right after her experience. The Randonautica tab is filled with similar videos of teens venturing into the woods and encountering creepy things or allegedly being pursued by strangers after leaving their locations. Others are building their own haunted locations on TikTok and, in the process, reimagining what short-form horror can look like. Creator Jay Zhao's series, Household Rules, applies a number of abstract rules and scenarios to a supposedly haunted house and is sometimes framed as an interactive venture. Zhao even spotlighted comments from people claiming they've had dreams about that very house, adding to the suspense. The hashtag Netflix original tag has also been applied to short-form horror, as seen through the lens of teen shows. TikTok's format, videos on the For You page autoplay, so you're already hooked, is also perfect for jump-scare-centric content. The account's shortest blockbuster, blockbusters sorry, post clips that feature alien creatures roaming the streets, shot by a bystander Cloverfield style. Creator Skeletor often films his young son in videos, but edits in a jump scare or visual effects for unsuspecting viewers. The algorithm does a great job in presenting your videos to those who would most likely be interested in your content, says the creator behind Shortest Blockbusters. And because of the variety of content on the platform, the audience doesn't always know what to expect from what they're watching, which creates an opportunity for the storyteller to surprise them. Seven months of pandemic anxiety has certainly made us all wary of any more surprises, which is perhaps why creators are coming up with new ways to scare their audience. So folks, um, TikTok is not something that I've really explored. Um, you know, I make no secret of my age, but it's just not really something that I've ever, you know, felt the want to get involved with. Uh, YouTube is enough for me. But yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's your cup of tea, and I know that there are younger people who listen to this program, by all means, you know, go over there, check out some of the videos on there, get yourself in the Halloween spirit. And uh, yeah, I find it quite interesting that they said that, you know, they feel a lot of people have had paranormal experiences. I 100% agree with that. I think that's why a lot of people are interested in programs like The Paranormal Sun, because I think that most of us in our life have had some type of run in with the unexplained, the bizarre, uh, you know, you name it, UFOs, ghosts, cryptids. I think that the majority of people uh, have had some run in or know someone personally who has had such a run in. And, you know, um, I've definitely had my run ins. And in fact, on the next program, I'll be getting into my one of my personal ghost stories for you. So don't forget to come back and listen to that program. Now, on to the next article here. Uh, and as always, folks, just so you know, there'll be links in the show notes. So you can go to these articles if you'd like to read further. So the next one here is from Vice.com, and this one, folks, is right in our wheelhouse. So this is titled, Fringe Conspiracy Theorist Think Trump is an Immortal Alien, Got COVID as Cover to Shapeshift. 
So yeah, folks, just when you think you've heard it all, um, I, I hadn't heard this conspiracy theory, so let's give it a go. So it says, Trump's coronavirus diagnosis has already been written into the doctrine of bizarre conspiracy theorists. And this was by MJ Benias. Earthlings prepared to be attacked, tweeted Richard Van Steenberg in response to the recent news that Donald Trump contracted COVID-19. Steenberg, like many others who believe nefarious aliens are visiting our planet, is concerned that Trump's recent illness is a sign of the coming alien apocalypse. QAnon is not the only movement getting worked up over Trump's coronavirus diagnosis. Conspiracy theorists on the extreme fringe also suspect that Trump, who they believe might be an immortal alien, might have contracted coronavirus in an attempt to shed his mortal flesh and shapeshift into something else. Steenberg started an online petition three years ago called Disclose, Human Extraterrestrials Live Among Us. Look, folks, um, you know, I try not to poke too much fun at these sort of things, but it just removes me of, re reminds me of that film. They live, you know, with Rowdy Roddy Piper anytime I hear something like that. So anyway, back, back to your uh, scheduled programming here. His website highlights the bulk of his theories, and with nearly 30,000 Twitter followers and over 10,000 signatures on his petition, Steenberg is confident he knows the truth. He is a purveyor of bizarre conspiracies that are largely divorced from anything happening in the observable universe. While he has a following among conspiracy theorists, his beliefs are fringe even for that space, and I would agree with that. If you take the time to understand the possibility of E.T. being able to exist in humanoid form, or humanoid E.T., you would realize they can live among us, and we will just think they are E.A., Earthlings, Steenberg wrote in an email. So again, very much like they live. Steenberg assess, asserts that there are countless alien-human hybrids who coexist with humans on Earth, and that many hold established positions of power, such as being celebrities or corporate CEOs. He believes that these extraterrestrials are engaged in a plan to subvert humanity and take control via psychological manipulation. Trump, according to Steenberg, is most likely in on the plan. The plan has been in action since they put us on the planet as cavemen, he said. I would say Trump is either a HET, human-alien hybrid, or a CEA, a human complicit in the alien plot in that he has known what is going on certainly for the better part of his public life on Earth and would have known early on he would be president, Steenberg explained. If he's an HET, it's very probable he existed before Earth and took part in the design of the ETA, the plot to invade. Steenberg explained that he believes that human-alien hybrids don't really die but are able to morph to look like whatever they want and not age. The news that Donald Trump has COVID-19 is just a distraction, as all world events are to keep humans focused on smaller issues and not the extraterrestrials. Again, there is no evidence to back up any of this. So Trump getting COVID follows the same pattern, Steenberg said. Humans will focus on the confusion surrounding the infection and how it will affect the upcoming debates and election. Spending its time worrying about Trump and Biden, humanity will not think philosophically about aliens and how to reside on Earth. Sherry Schreiner, an Ohio-based conspiracy theorist, internet radio show host, and self-proclaimed daughter of God, ran a successful religious movement on Facebook and YouTube in the mid to late 2000s until she died in 2018. Her doctrine, a mix of fundamentalist Christianity and UFO religion, proclaimed that Satan had contracted evil reptilian aliens to take over the world. 
using their advanced technology and their powers of psychological manipulation, shape-shifting, and cloning. The vast majority of celebrities and world leaders were reptilian aliens in disguise. Shriner's cult made headlines in 2012 when one of her followers killed himself or themselves and again in 2017 when another one of her followers shot her boyfriend in the head at point-blank range. According to her books and various social media posts, Shriner explained that she was chosen by God to save humanity from the evil aliens and Satan, their commander-in-chief. A handful of her followers have picked up Shriner's ministry and have continued to spread the word. According to posts on Facebook, Trump contracted COVID-19 because he is actually under the command of Satan. Citing the fact that he contracted the virus 33 days prior to the election and linking to other oddball prophecies found in the Nicolas Cage film Snake Eyes. It all boils down to the number 666 and that Trump has been marked by Satan. While these are extremely bizarre conspiracies with no basis in fact, they exist in a news ecosystem, social media environment, and political environment where the truth often doesn't matter and where the truth can be very difficult to discern. People like Schreiner and her followers, and Steinberg and his followers, exist alongside Republican operatives who suggest that Trump getting coronavirus is some sort of assassination plot, either from the left or from China. Meanwhile, state-led disinfo campaigns are likely continuing, though we don't know if they're having as much success as they had in 2016. Stephen Hassan, an expert on cult psychology and the author of The Cult of Trump, explains that bizarre beliefs, even ones about shape-shifting aliens trying to invade Earth, all serve to muddle the truth. These cults and religious movements can often be linked to psychological operations, Hassan explained over the telephone. Many people who fall into the UFO subculture are primed to believe other conspiracies, QAnon included. Dr. Stephen Greer, a popular UFO pundit whose films appear on Netflix, has appeared several times on the Russian state-sponsored news channel RT to talk about his method of alien contact and UFOs. In February of 2019, Greer told RT's Sophie Shevardnadze that three of his colleagues were, assass were assassinated by the CIA for attempting to disclose the truth behind a government-run UFO cover-up. Moreover, in the 1950s, the U.S. government did instruct American intelligence agencies to monitor UFO groups for dissident behavior. A collection of people who were already predisposed to believe in something with little evidence, such as aliens on Earth, and already hold a distrust in the government and other established institutions, seem to be a prime target for easy manipulation. These new movements, with exist, which exist primarily on the Internet, all seem to challenge the basic foundations of democracy. The media and government is corrupted by an evil force and only free-thinking followers can save it, predominantly via some sort of revolution or massive societal shift. President Trump is a symptom of a problem that we have been dealing with for decades now, Hassan concluded. It seems easy to write off people with strange or kooky beliefs. We shouldn't because that is dangerous. Well, folks, um, again, I try and keep politics off the show. This article uh, does take a little bit of a, you know, political jibe at it. You know, it's uh, it seems seems very keen to align the you know, quote unquote, right wing of politics and, you know, crazy UFO conspiracists. Look, I don't think there's anything wrong with believing that there's life out there in the universe besides life here on Earth. Again, I've said it on this program before, and I do have to look at it this way, although I will admit it has been difficult at times. Me 
saying, well, I believe in this and I don't believe in it. So, you know, for example, like I say, if I bash flat earthers constantly or, or I bash whoever believes in this conspiracy theory, and at the same time, you know, I'm espousing things like Bigfoot and, you know, that humanity's existed on this earth a lot longer than we know. Well, you know, it, it's not really my place to say, well, these and these and these are all right, but you're completely wrong, even though, you know, there's very little proof of any of them. So I try to keep an open mind. I do find it quite interesting here that, you know, again, they point out the government monitoring of UFO groups, and that's definitely happened. It happened in the 80s, you know, look up, you can look up Paul Benowitz and off the top of my mind, I can't think of the name of the Air Force, uh, Richard Doty, that was the Air Force operative that was involved in feeding this man disinformation. But anyway, you know, I mean, none of this is new as far as, you know, aliens are here amongst us, you know, go and look up, um, you know, anything online. I was just trying to think of the man off the top of my head. He's English and he used to be in mainstream media and he's the one, oh, David Icke. He's the one who's really, really believes in a reptilian conspiracy, and lots of people like to poke fun at him. But, but again, as I say, I try and keep an open mind here on the program, and he's got just as much of a chance of being right as you know many of the other conspiracy theories, quote unquote, that may seem a bit more uh, mainstream. So again, you know, I don't want to go around shooting down everyone else's theories. Uh, again, I, I think it's a bit disingenuous of me personally to sit here and poke fun at people when there are things that I believe in that many people would feel the same way about. You know, they, they would think that I'm a, I'm a crackpot as well if I espoused all of the uh, thoughts that I've got or the things that I find at least interesting. So anyway, folks, again, there's a link to that in the show notes and on to the next article. So this one, folks, is from coasttocoastam.com. And, you know, those of you that listen to the News of the Damned a lot, it wouldn't be a News of the Damned segment without an article from Coast to Coast AM. So this one is quite an interesting one. Wish-granting cat for sale in Russia. And this one is from Tim Benall. And it says, an odd online classified ad in Russia is selling what is described as a wish-granting cat. And by virtue of its purported ability, the feline's owner is asking for big bucks in return for the allegedly magical animal. The strange posting reportedly appeared on the Russian equivalent of Craigslist late last month and showcased a Scottish fold, dubbed Visic. In the listing, the seller asserts that the cat can grant wishes and names the selling price at a whopping 10 million rubles, which translates to roughly $127,000 US. As one might imagine, the curious ad caught the attention of a Russian media outlet who managed to track down Visic's owner, a woman named Elena, in the city of Novosibirsk, to get to the bottom of the very weird claim. According to her, the cat's ability to grant wishes was discovered accidentally when she was in need of an apartment. Turning to Visic, Elena Lemon lamented her plight and asked for the animal to fulfill my wish for a new place to live. Literally, the next day, I realized that everything would come true, she marveled. You immediately feel that events are starting to take shape as they should. And a month later, I already had an apartment. Elena says that she subsequently put Visic's wish-granting ability to the test, and her family members received a new apartment and a new car. Alas, in a tale as old as time, it would seem that the feline's magical powers were limited to only three instances, presumably per owner, 
which is why Elena has now decided to sell the cat. In light of the untold ri riches that the wish-granting creature can presumably bestow upon its future owners, Elena is asking for the relatively meager sum of $127,000 for the fantastic animal. Strangely enough, Visik is not the first magical feline to go up for sale in Russia, as an alleged psychic cat appeared in a similar ad last year asking for only $75,000, and in what was undoubtedly the inspiration for the two listings, another clairvoyant tabby actually sold for $83,000 back in 2017. Well, folks, uh, if you've got a spare $127,000 U.S. laying around, by all means, if you go and buy this cat, this wish-granting cat, and you become a millionaire, don't forget about me at the Paranormal Sun. <laughs> okay, folks, on to the next one, which is also from coasttocoastam.com. And this is a video. Now, this is one of those, can 2020 get any worse? Venomous caterpillars invade Virginia. So Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, you'll want to look out. And Brooke, you'll want to look out, definitely, because uh, Harry and Lisa, you're not far away. And uh, Brooke is in Virginia, so you and your family, you be safe out there. So it says, wildlife officials in Virginia have issued a warning about hairy, venomous caterpillars that produce a powerful and painful reaction when touched. According to the Virginia Department of Forestry, the deceptively diminutive creatures with the approximately nightmarish name Puss caterpillars have recently been spotted in several counties in the eastern part of the state. Somewhat resembling a tiny toupee, the fuzzy bug is far from adorable and, in fact, is one of the most venomous species of caterpillar in the U.S. by way of toxin which is easily transferred from its fur. Now that is uh, quite uh, concerning, folks, because you're not talking about something crawling on you and biting you. It's just simply touch it, basically, and this venom uh, can get onto you. Cautioning that the insects can be found in parks or near structures, the department advised residents, if you find the caterpillar, leave it alone and let its natural enemies control their populations. There are a number of other insects that will prey on them at different stages of their life cycle. Should an unfortunate individual come into contact with one of these creatures, experts say that they, sh they could suffer a variety of reactions, including an initial intense wave of pain, followed by possible nausea, fever, vomiting, and muscle cramps. It was like nothing I'd ever, do, ever experienced, recalled Puss Caterpillar victim Julie Hammer on a local television station. It was excruciating. It did not let up at all. The experience was so intense that she wound up in the emergency room seeking treatment where it felt like I was still being stung. During the entirety of her hospital visit, while the experts are uncertain as to why the non-native insects have arrived in Virginia, given the strangeness that has been 2020, it's not altogether surprising. To that end, now we're left wondering what might happen if they tangled with a murder hornet. So, um, yeah, folks, that's a bit of a laugh there. I could see, you know, like a Godzilla movie. Um, you could have these puss caterpillars versus the murder hornet. You know, that would be a that would be a good name for a movie. So now on to the last uh, article of the News of the Dam. And this one is definitely in the Halloween spirit, my friends. This one is titled, How Pepper's Ghost Became the Toast of Victorian London. Now, this one comes from mentalfloss.com, and it's written by Jake Rosen. For John Henry Pepper, the Christmas Eve of 1862 promised to be one that Londoners would not soon forget. If all went well, he would be the man responsible for making a skeleton come to life on stage. A lecturer and analytical, 
chemist for the Royal Polytech Institution, Pepper was a man of science with a reputation for showmanship. He attracted throngs of people to the institution with elaborate demonstrations that were part scientific principle and part stage show. Sometimes there would be more spectacle than science. For the holidays, the Polytech was mounting a production of A Haunted Man by Charles Dickens. In it, Pepper was about to utilize an optic effect that's still in use today. During a private performance earlier that day for select guests, Pepper watched as the skeleton appeared on stage in ethereal form, sorry, ethereal form, seemingly present but with a hazy definition of a ghost. Pepper had planned to disclose the secret of the trick, but the audience's reaction, they were stunned, gave him pause. For a time, the trick was the talk of Victorian London, with people regularly flocking to performances that featured it. And while it was dubbed Pepper's Ghost after the man who popularized it, it was not entirely his. The concept had originated with a man named Henry, Henry Dirks, which would watch with no small amount of frustration as his concept made Pepper one of the first celebrity scientists in history. John Henry Pepper was born in London on June the 17th, 1821, educated at King's College School and the Russell Institution and later employed as an assistant lecturer in chemistry at the Granger School of Medicine. Pepper was uniquely suited for the brewing scientific curiosities of Victorians. At the time, it was not unusual to see scientists provide demonstrations of experiments involving light, energy, and the human body. Pepper was a born showman, having taken an interest in theater and realizing that scientific concepts could be more easily understood when they were wrapped in the guise of a show. When he arrived at the Royal Polytechnic Institute in 1848, Pepper was all too willing to cater to the Polytechnic's desire to draw crowds and make science a form of spectator entertainment. Founded in 1838, the institution was intended to celebrate invention and ingenuity. There, Pepper beckoned audiences and promises, with promises of displaying the world's largest and smallest photographs, one a life-size portrait, another a tiny reproduction of a newspaper's front page. Pepper used the times for the exhibition, pretty much guaranteeing a good notice in the paper. Ah, smart man. He demonstrated harps that could play music without being strummed by hands, instead delivering acoustics from the conducted sound of musicians playing instruments several floors below. During a lecture on the art of balancing, he had a trapeze artist navigate a tightrope. Such stunts attracted everyone from the curious to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who attended a performance in 1855. Though there was no academic justification for the title, the Polytechnic's owners began referring to him as Professor Pepper, the man who could command a stage while illuminating science. By 1854, he was in charge of the Polytechnic's operations and remained a fixture until 1858, when he left over a financial dispute. In 1861, Pepper settled his differences with Polytechnic and returned as managing director. He was eager to increase the Institute's profile even more, and he believed the solution resided in the work of Henry Dirks, an engineer. Dirks had made a presentation during a British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in Leeds in 1858, in which he described a model of phantasmagoria for theatrical purposes. The trick was not actually new. A version of it had been described by Gian Battista della Porta in the 16th century book Magia Naturalis, Natural Mag Magic and it was remarkable in its simplicity. The goal was to make an object behind a person appear as though it was in front of them. The easiest way to imagine that is to think of looking at a window at night and seeing something behind you, 
like a lamp reflected in the glass. It's not technically an illusion as the object is being reflected with accuracy, but it does function as an optical trick for the observer. Dirks described a setup in which a compartment would be located under the seating area in a theater. Inside, an actor would be illuminated by oxyhydrogen driven light. That light would be reflected off a large pane of glass on stage. While the glass would be invisible to the audience, the reflection would not be. And the actor in the compartment would appear as though he were on stage. The light would make it seem as though a ghost-like apparition was present. If the actor was wearing a black coat and manipulating a skeleton, then the skeleton would appear to be moving. The idea was intriguing, but Dirks had not uncovered a way to mount such a production in existing theaters, and no theater manager seemed to want to work with Dirks to pursue it. But when Pepper discovered the idea, he partnered with Dirks on the premise that Pepper could make the trick work with only minor adjustments to the stage area. So, folks, this is pretty long, and I don't want to read the entire thing verbatim, which is rare, but, yeah, it, it goes on quite a bit. But it's basically, you know, getting into the nitty-gritty of what he did and how he did it. But basically, um, they're saying that this was the precursor of things like the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland and, uh, you know, the holograms of people like Tupac at the Coachella Music Festival. So anyway, you know, it is quite interesting. And again, as is often accredited to King Solomon, I don't know, you know, how true it is. I don't think any of us does. But, you know, it's attributed that King Solomon said nothing is new under the sun. So basically everything has already been done. And, you know, anything that is quote unquote new is actually a rehash of some old idea. And if if we need any proof of that, folks, just look at Hollywood, the way they just keep rehashing and rebooting movies and, uh, you know, content seems to be very little uh, new, fresh ideas coming out of Hollywood. But anyway, folks, um, as, as I say, there'll be a link in the show notes if you'd like to go over and finish off that article. Um, and it is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize. But, you know, back in Victorian times and before that, Christmas was actually not the holly jolly season that it is for many people today back then it was much more about ghosts and you know there you know a christmas carol is the perfect uh, epitome of that uh, that was written by dickens and it's got obviously the three ghosts and a lot of other supernatural things going on uh, you know bob marley and that involved so anyway uh, we'll see what we do this year when we get to the holidays around christmas but with that folks i hope that you've enjoyed those five articles uh, of the news of the damned and i hope that you've enjoyed them as i say there's a link in the show notes and now we're going to move on to the main topic of this program which is the aforementioned moving coffins of barbados we all know the caribbean was a place of extensive and harsh colonization from almost the day that the columbus expedition sighted land on october the 12th 1492 and quote discovered unquote the americas don't tell the people who were already there. We don't want them getting that lifetime pension from King Ferdinand. It should be no surprise when you mix the native populations of the islands with the colonizers from France, England, Holland, Spain, and Portugal, as well as settlers from all over Europe and the millions of enslaved from Africa, you will get a hodgepodge of mysterious and bone-chilling tales. Tonight I'm going to introduce you to one of the oldest and most contentious tales of the unexplained, you will find in the annals of the colonial period of the New World. Barbados may be known as a popular tourist destination, but local culture and history involve more than just white sand beaches and fruity mixed drinks. 
In the center of the island is Christ Parish Church, whose graveyard, like many graveyards, has a few ghost stories. Tonight's particular tale involves a family's tragic saga and a legacy of post-mortem unrest. The Chase Vault was constructed by the Waldrons, a wealthy sugar plantation family. The vault was cut from the rocks that formed the island for James Elliot around 1724. The vault was built such that it was partially underground. It was approximately 12 feet, which is 3.7 meters long, and 6.5 feet wide, which is about 2 meters. However, Elliot was never interred there, and the vault remained empty until 1807. On, on the 31st of July, 1807, the crypt received its first occupant, Mrs. Thomasina Goddard. She was buried in a wooden coffin, and a large marble slab was used to seal off the entrance. In 1808, the Chase family, who were another wealthy plantation family, purchased the vault. The family patriarch was Colonel Thomas Chase, a man with the reputation of having a bad temper and a propensity for cruelty to his slaves and his family alike. Chase purchased the vault for the burial of their child, an infant by the name of Mary Ann Maria. Some claim her name was Anne Marie, or Mary Ann Marie. As already stated, the tomb already held the body of a Mrs. Thomasina Goddard, buried in 1807. Colonel Thomas Chase, patriarch of the family, decided against disturbing the deceased by moving her coffin out of the new family vault. Four years after they buried their baby, the Chases had to bury another child, their daughter Dorcas. The circumstances surrounding her death were more than slightly unusual. The young girl starved herself to death, apparently as an act of rebellion against her father, Thomas, who was supposedly abusing her. The girl's body was buried beside her infant sisters, each small body held in heavy lead caskets. Just one month after burying Dorcas, Thomas Chase himself died. Strangely, his death was also a suicide. The family prepared Thomas's body and opened the Chase vault. When Colonel Chase's coffin was taken down into the vault, the pallbearers noticed that the two leaden coffins already in the tomb were not where they had been left a month earlier. Marianna's coffin was lying upside down in the opposite corner from where it had been placed. The Chase family was shocked, but they chalked up the scene to grave robbers. The coffins were once again arranged neatly, and Thomas's casket, made of lead just as his daughter's had been, and weighing nearly 240 pounds, or around 115 kilograms, was added. The smaller coffin of Mariana was placed on top of one of the larger ones. The massive marble stone was rolled back into place, taking several men to do so, and the entrance was sealed. At this point, the moving of the coffin was blamed on the slaves who had assisted in the burials. The alleged cruelty of Colonel Chase towards his servants offered an easy revenge motive. In 1816, the vault was opened for the next time, on two separate occasions. The Reverend Thomas Orderson, rector of Christ Church, was on hand along with a magistrate and two other men. On both occasions, the coffins had been moved, the second time with such force that Mrs. Goddard's coffin was almost completely destroyed. The crypt was opened on the 25th of September, 1816, for the burial of Master Samuel Brewster Ames. Again, the 11-year-old's body was prepared for burial, and the chase vault was opened. The invasion of 1812 seemed to have happened again. All four coffins, including Thomas's tremendously heavy one, were displaced, as if they had been tossed like toys. And yet the entrance had not been tampered with. Once again, the coffins were returned to their original place, and the tomb was resealed. Then again on the 17th of November, the vault was opened for his father, Samuel Brewster. 
The Reverend, the Reverend Doctor ordered the vault thoroughly inspected for cracks in the walls, floor, ceiling, or any hidden entrances, and the crypt proved to be as solid as the day it was built. The coffins were put back how they were, and the door sealed with mortar. This would definitely expose any signs of someone entering the tomb secretly. On the 7th of July, 1819, the tomb was reopened to receive the body of Miss Thomasina Clark. Word of the moving coffins had spread, and many people turned up to witness the opening, including the governor, Sir Stapleton Cotton, Viscount Combermere. When the heavy marble door was removed, once again the coffins had been rearranged. Again, the structure was examined and proved to contain no secret passages, cracks in the walls, or any other way into the tomb apart from the main doorway. One coffin never moved from its initial place, the wooden coffin of Thomasina Goddard. However, it had signs of heavy damage from other coffins bumping into it, and Mrs. Goddard's skeleton was sticking out of it. It was around this time that the public began to take interest in the stories that were being told of the moving coffins. Word of the recent openings in 1816 and 1819 had stoked the other islanders' curiosity and dread. It seemed that the dead really were not at rest. Secondary stories of hearing shrieks from within the tomb, or of horses being spooked while passing it, also became more and more prevalent. The governor of Barbados himself even took interest in the case. He ordered an inspection of the chase vault, inside and out, and, after being satisfied that it was secure, had a fine dust sprinkled on the floor and his own signet ring stamped into the seal of the door. He stated that he would revisit at a time only known to him to avoid anyone interfering with these preparations. This time, the coffins were rearranged with the addition of Mrs. Thomasina Clark and the floor sanded with fine white sand. The door was placed back in position and mortared into place. When the Masons had completed their task, the, the governor made several impressions in the mixture with his own personal seal, and many of those attending added various private marks in the wet mortar. The governor stated that he would revisit at a time only known by him to avoid interference with preparations. Eight months later, he would return. Over the next year, there were numerous reports of rumblings inside the crypt. Visitors and the locals reported eerie sounds and howls coming from within, and they started to relate the vault with ghosts and paranormal beings. On the 18th of April, 1820, an impatient Governor Com Combermere decided to open the crypt and resolve the matter once and for all. The crypt was examined from the outside, and no obvious signs of tampering, weakness, or entry were seen. The mortar seal was examined and was intact, and those who had made marks in the mortar were satisfied that they too were untouched. As the door was being pulled away, a coarse grating sound came from within the crypt. As they leaned in to look, they saw the coffin containing the body of Dorcas Chase leaning against the door. The small coffin of Mary Ann Maria Chase inside the tomb for 12 years had been flung so violently against the left side wall that it had chipped away a piece of it. The rest of the coffins had been disturbed in a similarly chaotic manner. The sand covering the floor offered no trace of anything. This was the last time that the vault was to be reopened. Each coffin was individually buried, hoping to restore some peace to the individual, individuals whose bodies were inside. The tomb itself remains empty and open to this day, with nothing but the tropical breeze passing through. I examined the walls, the arch, and every part of the vault, and found every part old and similar, and a mason in my presence struck every part of the bottom with his hammer, and all was solid. I confess myself at a loss to account for the movements of these leaden coffins. 
thieves certainly had no hand in it. And as for any practical wit or hoax, too many were requisite to be trusted with the secret for it to remain unknown. And as for Negroes having anything to do with it, their superstitious fear of the dead and everything belonging to them precludes any idea of the kind. All I know is that it happened, and that I was an eyewitness to the fact. The Honorable Nathan Lucas, April 18th, 1820. Many people came up with theories, including Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He proposed a theory that it was Thomas and Dorcas's ang angry spirits that made the coffins move, considering that the two were dead by suicide. Moreover, coffins were only started to move after Dorcas was put inside. Now here are some of the criticisms about this tale, folks. Although the story has circulated for over 200 years, many researchers call it historically dubious. No burial records or newspaper articles exist to confirm the tale as it allegedly happened, and certain details of the event echo a Freemason allegory of secret vaults and restless coffins. However, there was a Chase family living in Barbados at the time, and there are others who swear by the facts of the tale. Whether or not it can be known for certain, it seems telling that the tomb has remained open ever since, that the Chase family bodies have remained separated, specifically those of Dorcas and her father Thomas, and no mysterious movement has since happened. There is little or no evidence that a stone slab was ever placed on the vault's horizontal entrance. Writers have taken great pain to describe its nearly impossible weight, requiring six or seven straining men to move it. But an examination of the lip and edges of the vault, both on the surface of the current slab and beneath it, show no telltale damage, gouges, or deep scratches which would inevitably result from a huge stone slab being placed and replaced over the vault. There also has been no trace of this occurrence being recorded anywhere in Barbados. Nowhere in other church parish records, correspondence with colonial authorities, or any other records. This in and of itself isn't the be-all and end-all, and I'll explain why later on. Now here are some theories that may explain these coffins' movement if this story is real. The most obvious explanation in, in, is that one or more unknown people entered the vault and disturbed the coffins. There would, however, be no motivation for this. The coffins were unopened, and even if they had been opened, there was nothing of value contained within. Furthermore, there was no evidence of any breach of the underground vault, no breaking of seals or traces on the ground in the fine sand. Moving the entrance slam would have been difficult in and of itself, likely requiring a half a dozen people not to mention lifting and moving heavy, body-filled, lead-lined coffins within a very tight space. And all of this would have been done under the cover of night without any artificial light to, to avoid detection on multiple occasions over the course of eight years. Another superficially obvious explanation for the vault disturbances is some sort of apparently very localized earthquake that somehow affected the vault. While earthquakes do occur in Barbados, they are rare, minor, and would likely have been noted as being linked to the repeated coffin disturbances. Another, somewhat more likely natural explanation is that the vault became flooded and the coffins, despite being lead-lined and heavy, were nevertheless buoyant enough to have floated in, into such disarray. This theory was advanced from at least the 1860s, with its advocates noting that the Caribbean island is often battered by drenching hurricanes. The two possible sources would be storm water or groundwater, though both are equally improbable. It's not obvious from photographs, but the vault and the Christchurch Cemetery 
or near the top of a hill, not in a valley, and rain would run off in all directions long before filling up the vault. During an especially sustained heavy rain, a few inches of water might appear in the vault, but it would likely drain out soon thereafter, as the terrain is mostly porous coral limestone. As for groundwater, Joe Nickel quotes the chief engineer of Waterworks Department of Barbados, who explains, quote, For flooding to be a real possibility, the vault would have, have to be no more than a few feet above sea level. If the vault were located more than 10 feet or 3 meters above sea level, then flooding could not have been the cause. In any event, one would expect that burial vaults at lower elevations on the island, such as those in St. Philip, St. Lucie, and St. Michael parishes, would be routinely flooded, and this phenomenon well known by undertakers across Barbados. Furthermore, this theory would not explain the extensive displacement of the coffins, given their size and number, and the very small space they occupied, not to mention the two-meter or six-and-a-half-foot-high curved ceiling preventing significant shifting on the z-axis, it's far more likely that the coffins would float and then resettle in a more or less same position. If it was flooding that caused the movement, it would have flooded and then dried out in a very short space of time in some cases. When the vault was left open, as it is almost all underground, it would still flood. Has flooding ever been reported since? I don't know. If not, why did it flood several times between 1807 and 1820, but never again? Or at least get very wet? Why has the vault been left open for almost 200 years? Also, there are many other vaults alongside the Chase Vault that would be similarly flooded, yet no moving coffins have ever been rumored in any of those vaults. Some have suggested that gases escaping from the decomposing corpses could somehow cause the coffins to move. This is um, implausible for many reasons including that escaping gases might perhaps cause a coffin to crack open, but the vessel would neither explode nor jostle, except perhaps momentarily and unnoticeably as the pressure escaped, just as a carbonated drink doesn't jump out of your hand when you open the top. Lastly, some have suggested that lightning might somehow have moved the coffins. Barbados, like many Caribbean islands, is subject to frequent hurricanes, at times accompanied by lightning strikes. Attempting to address the lack of plausible mechanisms by which lightning could move the coffins, Brian Readout recently advanced this theory in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. He states that the electric current created by a lightning strike could be responsible for the mystery. The electrical energy will spread away from the point of a lightning strike in a series of concentric circles, losing power as it travels and inducing a strong magnetic field. The magnetic effect has been detectable up to 40 meters or 130 feet from the point of a strike in desert soils. If the current reaches a lead coffin, then it will induce a magnetic field, which will be a dipole, creating a positive and negative end to the coffin. Because the coffins were all aligned the same way, the induced charges at the head ends and at the feet ends would have been similar for each. The effect would only last for a fraction of a second because lead does not hold a magnetic field, but during that fraction of a second, like charges will repel and unlike charges will attract. If the coffins were small or unstable, then they would move as far as there was room to do so. Rideout acknowledges that there is no evidence that an electricity conducting pole was anywhere near the chase vault in 1820, but suggests that the nearby church roof might have been hit. The church structure that existed during the eight, early 1800s is long gone, but Rideout notes that a 1936 source affirms that the current church was built upon the foundations of its predecessors, and thus the chase vault will always have been close to the bell tower at the west end. 
Once the natural explanations have been disregarded, that of course leaves us with the supernatural ones. And in that event, one is as good as another. Anything from ghosts, to curses, gremlins, and psychokinetic energy could have moved the coffins, and there is exactly equal evidence for any of those. Regardless of whether or not the Chase Vault coffins genuinely moved, why do people, the Barbadians in particular, believe that they moved? To C.J. Hines, it was not surprising that the Chase dead were disturbed, because as he told me, the family fought in life and they fought in death, and the only way to separate the fighting in the end was to put them in different parts of the church cemetery. They were dabbling in black arts, and it went to the graves with them. They were fighting amongst themselves in life, over the land, over money, relations. It was always problems with that family, and they took it directly to the grave. Now, there are some other restless coffin legends that I want to give you, just so you've got a bit of context, folks. So, the Chase Vault story is only one of several legends, perhaps a half dozen or more, involving mysteriously moving coffins and supposedly sealed vaults around the world. Lang recounts an identical tale from June 1844 regarding a Lutheran cemetery in Ahrisburg on the island of Ossel in the Baltic Sea, adding that despite considerable investigation, no evidence of such happenings was ever discovered and that the disturbances precisely parallel those described in the Chase Vault. It will be observed that the Olsen and the Barbados tales are precisely similar in every respect. Lang describes another case in Suffolk, England, referenced by a Sir James Clerk in 1833. In fact, we need not visit the British Isles or the Baltic to find other identical legends. Though the Chase Vault is the most famous mystery on Barbados, the same thing happened only about 7 miles or 11 kilometers to the north, in the parish of St. Thomas. It involved a Welshman named William Aesgill, Williams, who moved to the island in the 1600s, and his family's moving coffins. Records date the Williams family vault to at least 9th January 1741, demonstrating that the Williams vault preceded the Chase family vault by at least 60 years. In his 1928 book, Barbados Diocesan History, Canon Reese refers to a report noting that a rather common feature among Barbados legends is the erratic behavior in vaults of lead and copper coffins. There is, of course, the famous Christchurch story, as well as three or four other stories, quoted in Rideout, 2018. Even a solitary story of such a seemingly singular event would be curious, but to have four or five such stories about restless coffins on such a single small island is remarkable indeed. So, what are the conclusions here, folks? What are we left with? Earthquakes? Flooding? Lightning? A poltergeist? A curse? Or something unexplained? I and so many others before me have always found it a key part of the tale that the first occupant of the vault and the only wooden coffin did not move. This led to many in the past to postulate that it was the angry spirit of Mrs. Thomasina Goddard. As for the claims that this has all been a fabricated tale, Due to the lack of other reports or records, I'm the first to admit that this is an issue. However, in an area prone to hurricanes, war, and flooding, just to name a few, there's always the possibility that such records have been destroyed, lost, or misplaced. If this story is true and it occurred roughly as described, then it's one of the more detailed and spooky tales of the type. As for JT, as always, I feel even if it is a tall tale, so often in these cases, when you peel away the layers, there's a core of truth. As always, you be the judge. 
And with that, my friends, have a great week. Oh, what's that you say? This isn't a normal novel-length episode? Well, I guess you're right. So let's stay in the Caribbean for some more bonus content. For you, my loyal listeners. Like so many of these long-settled islands, Barbados has no, no shortage of tales to choose from. The Steel Donkey. Imagine walking on a road late at night and you hear the clink-clank of chains behind you. If you're brave enough, you turn around and you see the bloodshot red eyes of a donkey wrapped in chains. This is the description of the Steel Donkey. This animal is said to roam the streets at night, though no one has actually seen it. This creature emerged sometime in the early 20th century, out of the superstition of cursing, that is, the belief that persons can put curses on others. In appearance, the steel donkey has features of an animal, more specifically a donkey, with eyes like fire, and apparently he was fire-breathing as well, according to some reports. The donkey has been associated with stones landing on houses without anyone in sight seen to be throwing them. Others have associated the steel donkey with terrorizing some members of Barbados, particularly those from rural areas and their homes in the middle of the night. One minute it resided in Silver Sands. Next it was seen in Bay Street. Neither of these are rural areas, I might add. As you can see, there's hardly a consensus about who or what the steel donkey was and what, it, what its purpose was. Many real-life sightings tend to vary in their description of what the steel donkey was. Information has been limited on this particular aspect of Barbadian folklore. In the words of the famous Barbadian music group The Merrymen, which you would have heard at the top of the segment, half of Barbados sweared that they see the steel donkey, yet no one can agree on what he, she, or it was. As with many local legends, there isn't much more to discover on the internet, so hopefully you at least have enjoyed these tales. Now, the Baku Man. The tale of the Baku Man is not singular to Barbados. It also features in Guianese and Trinidadian folklore. Think of a tiny man with a long beard who terrified residents by constantly moving objects around in the house. The Baku Man was supposedly owned by East Indians, and when customers lapsed on payments for goods received, this little man would be summoned to put fear in their hearts of those who owed the debt. While he can be loyal and obliging, this creature is known for being incredibly demanding and impatient. To properly care for your Baku, you must feed him enormous quantities of milk and bananas. In exchange for food, the Baku might fulfill a particular wish or reward you with riches. The Baku is very fond of causing all sorts of mischief. Ignore a Baku at your own peril, for he is capable of causing serious accidents. It is rumored that one unsatisfied and vengeful Baku living in Brooklyn, New York, caused a house to burn down. It's quite difficult to get rid of a Baku. Baku can be trapped in a bottle, but doing so requires skill and patience. A bottle containing trapped Baku is usually given to fishermen to be discarded into the great depths of the ocean. Legend has it that if you find a cork bottle on the seawall, you should never open it, as it may contain a Baku. If you open the bottle and there is a Baku, then he will stay with you and you will be forced to feed him bananas and milk or incur his wrath. Baku may actually be derived from a Nigerian Yoruba entity called Abiku. The Abiku is the spirit of a baby that has died before being named. They are usually represented by small wooden statues in Yoruba homes as a form of appeasement to the spirit of the deceased. The Caribbean Baku may actually be derived from these statues. Caribbean Bakus are described as short men with large eyes, long arms, and legs, 
and most conspicuously, an absence of kneecaps. A spirit of small stature that pelts stones at houses and moves objects within a house like a poltergeist. Stories abound of the existence of Bakus in Georgetown and other areas in Guyana. The legend could have come from Suriname. The spirit is said to have been trapped in, in a cork bottle unless released. Bakus are active mainly at night. It is said that a satisfied Baku will answer the wishes of its owner. When a Baku takes over, the person will act crazy and go insane, almost like obia or voodoo was performed on them. Another legend says that the Baku will do work for his master. In return, the master must feed the Baku on bananas and milk. If the Baku does not get his daily ration of bananas and milk, it is said that the Baku will beat the master severely. Old people from West Coast Damara in Guyana often speak of two famous Bakus named Boise and Boya. They lived in Stewartsville on the old road. As the stories go, if anyone would say anything bad about them or about Bakus in general, they would get angry and make bad things happen to whoever had said the bad things. They had once covered a man in feces for saying bad things about them. And another story is that they had caused objects in a man's house to start flying around. Bakus can be trapped inside of glass bottles, but this is a very difficult task. First, something to attract them must be put into the bottle. Then, after they have gone into the bottle, a cork must be jammed into the bottle to act as a stopper. Once this has been done, the Baku cannot escape. Now, La Dibialesi, also called La Jobless. Not as popular in Barbados, but still well known. Men have been warned if they see a strange woman standing on the side of the road to avoid her at all cost, dressed in a long frock that conceals her secret, a goat leg, and in some stories it is reported that she has cow legs. For those men who became bewitched by her beauty, they would be seduced, led into the bushes, only to be devoured by the devil in disguise. The La Diablesse looms tall in the annals of local mythology. She is the devil woman, the temptress and seductress, whose wiles would entrap any man whose ill luck fell in, into her path. She is both the paragon of womanly beauty and the image of demonic lust. La Diablesse is well known to all who cherish the stories of yesteryear. Almost every village in Trinidad, particularly in the hamlets of the Northern Range, has a yarn to weave about the beautiful woman in the Martinican dress, voluminous skirts, head tie, hat perched jauntily on her head, who waits along the lonely pass for heedless menfolk who would digress from their courses to accommodate a pretty, pretty face. Those skirts veil, however, the sinister features for which La, La Diablesse is infamous, namely the cloven hoof, the cow foot, which distinguishes her from mortal women. It is largely possible that Martinique was the place of origin of the La Diablesse, since many French settlers came from this island, and the devil woman herself almost always makes an appearance clothed in the style which has become synonymous with the French Antilles. She appears on the nights when the full moon is the only light that pierces the darkness, and she waits on those removed by ways where a man is likely to pass. The eminent 19th century traveler and writer, Lafcadio Hearn, spent two years in the West Indies in the 1880s, and though he visited Trinidad, the majority of his stay was in Martinique, where he documented several aspects of the French Creole culture. It was Hearn's memoirs of his West Indian sojourn that introduced La Diablesse to the wider world. In a quarter of the city of Saint-Pierre, which was destroyed with massive loss of life by a volcanic eruption in 1902, he wrote, 
Mostly she haunts the mountain roads, winding from plantation to plantation, from hamlet to hamlet. But close to the great town she sometimes walks. She has been seen at midday upon the highway which overlooks the cemetery of Anchorage, behind the cathedral of St. Pierre. In Mr. Hearn's narration, La Diablesse is a tall woman, African in appearance, simply but elegantly clad, and all the men know and fear her. One of the more foolhardy, Fafa, sees her as she passes through his street and falls under her charming spell as she croons a bewitching patois rhythm and takes to a precipitous road leading to the heights above St. Pierre. Fafa's compari Gabo follows at a distance, but after a while turns in horror and flees, since he has seen her most terrible trait, the cloven hoof that hides beneath the sweeping hem of her madras skirts. Onward and upward, Fafa follows the temptress as the craggy roadway arches away from the last signs of humanity towards the gloom of the forest where the dread fur de lance makes his lair. He is now beginning to feel fear, but his infatuation supersedes this warning. Now they are on the summit of a mountain, and she reaches for his hand. Hers is as cold as ice as she speaks loving words to the spellbound Fafa. The account written by Mr. Hearn terminates thus, and she suddenly turning at once to him, and to the last red light, the goblin horror of her face transformed, shrieks with a burst of hideous laughter, Kiss me now! For the fraction of a moment he knows her name, then smitten to the brain, with the sight of her, he reels, recoils, and backwards falls, crashing two thousand feet down to his death upon the rocks of a mountain torrent. So hopefully, my friends, you've enjoyed these additional tales of the Caribbean, and specifically Barbados. Don't forget, next week's show will be all about the myths and legends of Illinois. And in that, I will have my own personal ghostly encounter. So have a great week, and as always, to quote Art Bell, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does with reside within may not be reached.